0: When I was in college at our professor, our Professor Rasdorf, his office uh, was always open. And so uh, my friends and I would go in uh, several times uh, a week to, to talk with him. Sometimes it was about civil engineering. Uh, most of the time it was about canoeing or ping pong or whatever was, uh, was going on at the time. Uh, but a, a, a lot of times our conversations would move to the discussion of uh, of Christianity, and of the, of the Bible. Um, Dr. Rasdorf knew that we were followers of Jesus, and he was very adamant that he was not. And he had a definite and clear reason why, and that was the book of Joshua. The conquest of the promised land by the people of Israel was completely heinous to him in his mind. How could I believe in a God that would uh, condone and approve of the slaughter of people for their land? This is genocide, he would say. I can't trust and hope in a God like that. Uh, maybe, Maybe the God of the New Testament, but if there's any connection there, then not even that God could I hope and trust in. What do we do with the conquest of the book of Joshua? If, if we're hoping to, to have and see people have a response and trust and rest in Jesus, should our, our response be to distance Jesus Christ as far as we can from this stuff in the Old Testament? As far as we can from the conquest to preserve his reputation— hoping that people would, would hear the gospel and not be swayed by those tough and difficult things in the, the Old Testament. Uh, maybe a, a modern PR person would say, yes, for sure. If there's any sort of even possible connection between Jesus and those horrible events that happened in the book of Joshua, then we want to make sure they're not even brought up. Hide them going back to what we talked about last week, scrub the Google search of Jesus. It's interesting. Matthew, as we're looking at his genealogy of Jesus, he is not interested at all in distancing Jesus from the conquest of the Old Testament. Remember, what we're we're seeing as we're taking these, these four weeks, to look at the, there's four women from the Old Testament that Matthew specifically mentions in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's breaking with normal protocol of the time, by including women in the genealogy, and we're asking this question, why? What is it about these women in particular? Why would Matthew include them? What insight do they give us into uh, Jesus? his character, his person, his work, the good news of the gospel. Notice, Matthew does not shy away at all from drawing connections between Jesus and the conquest. Look, look in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. If you're following along in one of the Black Bibles, this is on page 807. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Rahab, straight out of Jericho. Rahab is a Jerichoan. She, Her story from the Old Testament we find in the book of Joshua. And here, Matthew is saying Jesus is directly connected to this event. Not only that, but notice what he calls Jesus the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus. It's an American transliteration of the Greek name Yesu, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which we know, transliterated back into English, is Joshua. Joshua. Yahweh saves You can't say the name Jesus without having connections to the book of Joshua and this conquest. What do we do about that? What does this tell us about Jesus? His work, who he is, what he's come to do, what he will come to do. Why include Rahab in this connection in this genealogy? That is what we want to look at together as God's people this morning. So, uh, we're going to see that the road to Jesus, the road and pathway of the gospel, comes straight through Jericho. Let's, uh, let's pray. We definitely need to ask the Lord to help us to understand and me to communicate this this morning. So, please join me in, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, even these, and especially these difficult uh, passages. Uh, we pray and ask this morning uh, that you would please help help us understand really what you are communicating and saying. Uh, Father, I pray that you would guide my words. Uh, I, I do not want to misrepresent your character or the character of Jesus, your son. Uh, may he be glorified. Show us him truly and really this morning. We pray, Amen. Amen. So, uh, if you would, let's, let's look over in the book of the book of Joshua where we find Rahab. Before we jump directly into uh, looking at Rahab, we want to look at the the conquest itself, particularly of Jericho. So, look with me in Joshua chapter six, where we're going to see why Doctor Rasmussen. And many others are so upset about what they read here. Joshua chapter 6, if you're following along in one of the Black Bibles, that's on page 182. um, Beginning in verse 15. So this is catching up in the part of the story where the people of Israel, they've marched around Jericho six days. This is the seventh day, they've marched around seven times, and now Joshua is giving them these instructions. On the seventh day, they arose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Devoted for destruction. What does that mean? What's involved with that? Look down in verse 20 and 21. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Whew. this is very hard and difficult passage. people who who are saying that they are following the God of the Bible would go in to this city and with the sword slaughter men and women. Young kids, old, elderly people, even all of their animals. What, what's going on here? What what kind of God would send them in to do this? Is, is this like Dr. Rasdorff interprets genocide? Is this something that we need to question our allegiance to a God who would send his people in to commit such horrible, terrible, heinous acts? Well, what we are needing to understand first is, in order for us to understand this, in order for us to understand the gospel and the person and work of Jesus, we first need to have an understanding of the justice and the wrath of our God. Look, flip back a, a couple of, uh, of, of chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's on page 153 if you're in the Black Bible. So prior to coming over into the Promised Land, the people of Israel gathered on the other side of the Jordan, and Moses was instructing them from God on why they were going into the promised land and what they were doing. And listen to what God says to his people through Moses, beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, Whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is Yahweh your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Notice who it is doing the destroying. It is God himself. You shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as Yahweh has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, that it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. We're seeing here, It's not Joshua and the people's idea to go in and take this land. It's not because they're Canaanites. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity, their nationality, their race. Israel is in fact told you are not to think that you're going in and doing this because you're better than them. And they deserve to get kicked out because of how good and great you are. Now, God is saying here, and He's defining and shaping how we interpret and understand everything that is going on in Jericho and the rest of the Promised Land. And it has to do with the justice of our righteous and holy God. What is going on is He is pouring out His just wrath on sinners who are in rebellion against Him. This is not genocide. In fact, this isn't even new. Think back. What about the days of Noah when the flood came? What happened there? Men, women, young, old, animals died. Why? Genocide? Because of their nationality? Of their race? No. Because of their wickedness and their rebellion against God. What about the Egyptians? Men, women, young, old, animals died. Why? Because they were Egyptians? No. Because of their rebellion and their wickedness before God. It's not even just an Old Testament concept or category let's look look for it at the words that jesus himself uses to talk about his his coming look over in uh, matthew 24 so further along in matthew's account of jesus life and teaching matthew 24 beginning in verse 36 He's talking about His second coming, His return. I want you to pick up on the connections and comparisons Jesus is making and the language that He uses to describe what will happen. But concerning that day and hour, His return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, or, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. That taken there is taken in judgment. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken in judgment and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give from their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes, Truly I say to you, he will set them over his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus himself as he describes his return, compares it to these great acts of judgment in the Old Testament, of cutting up with a sword, punishing those who are in rebellion against him. You see, if we are going to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do, from what we are being saved from, We must understand the righteousness, the justice, and the wrath of our God. Do we not realize we should see here all of us are deserving of this wrath and justice? What happened in the time of Noah? What happened in the time of the Egyptians? What happened in the time of Jericho? Is an early breaking in of this end-time judgment that Jesus is talking about. God, in His patience and in His mercy, brought them in at that time as insight and a warning and an invitation to God, to people to turn from our sin and our rebellion, from our high treason against our God, recognizing that the just penalty we deserve is His wrath and His curse. It is not because they're Canaanites. It's because they're unrepentant rebels before the great and high king. Do you recognize and realize that's who you and I are, am, apart from Jesus? Apart from Christ. That is what we deserve. We are not righteous. If you are a, a, a hoping and resting and trusting in Jesus... You must hear the words of Deuteronomy. Learn from the conquest of Joshua. Learn from the genealogy of Jesus that you are not included because you were righteous. I was not saved because I am righteous. In fact, I am stubborn of heart, and so are you. We deserve His wrath and His justice. But He's offered something else. If you are here not following and hoping and trusting in Jesus right now would, would you hear this warning would you hear what Jesus says to be prepared this isn't just an Old Testament myth and story it was given then so that we could learn now to prepare for Jesus' return Notice, uh, back over in in Joshua, something weird happens, though. Look in Joshua 6 again in verse 17. And the city and all that was within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And, And down again in verse 21. They devoted all the city to destruction, both men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels and the bronze of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho hold on. This is about wickedness and just punishment of this city? And the only person and family that you save is a prostitute? Is that not wickedness? Is that not sin? I mean, maybe we could understand it. If the old lady who made blankets and fed the children and the dogs in the streets of of Jericho, if that was the one that you went in and saved, I could get that. But a a prostitute? What what is going on here? What is God up to? What is He doing? In order to understand that, what we're going to see is that it's not only the wrath and and justice of God that we must understand, but it's His great grace and His mercy. They talk a lot, Joshua does, he reiterates this, that Rahab hid the messengers. She hid the spies. In order for us to, to understand what it is about Rahab, God's grace and His mercy to her, him saying, you know what, I want to save Rahab the prostitute. Look over in Joshua 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you in order to understand what it is about Rahab and what's happening in this situation, uh, we, we should look at the response that Rahab has and compare it to the response of the rest of the city. Notice what she has said. They have heard about the great and mighty acts of the God of Israel, going all the way back to his deliverance from Egypt. They knew about that. This is 40 years previous. That it means it's possible at this time that Rahab would have been very young or not even born when that first happens. So that means that the people of Jericho have been talking about it. They know these great and mighty acts. God has demonstrated who He is, His glory, His power, and His might. They know who He is and what He has done And what he is coming to do. And yet, how do the people of Jericho respond? They're afraid. But in their fear, what do they do? They fortify their city. Locking it up. They are prepared to battle against this God. How dare you come in and want to claim our city? How dare you come in and want to condemn and judge us? We are the rulers. We're not going to obey and listen to you. We're going to follow the gods we've made and we have created. We'll defeat this puny God of Israel and maintain our own kingdom here. But how does Rahab respond? Do you see what she said? I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the fear of you is falling on us. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then notice what she says, her declaration of faith. For Yahweh your God, He is God. Period. God in heaven and God on earth. Now please swear to me kindly by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with me and my father's house. Rahab here is saying, no matter what of allegiances I have had in the past, no matter what gods I have depended and trusted on, now I recognize and see that there is one true and living God, and it is the God of Israel. It is Yahweh, the covenant God of you. And I want to be associated with him. We deserve His judgment. He's given the land into you. And I am now switching my allegiances and hoping and resting in Him. Will He have any mercy on me? What do the spies say? Yeah, we'll deal kindly with you. If, if, if you don't tell anybody about us, we promise that you will not be slaughtered, devoted to destruction. What do they say? Spies thinking, how can they make this offer? Unless, unless they know something about the character of the God who has sent them. Who is slow to anger. Who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace to those who look and hope and rest and trust in him. And they promise to Rahab Yes, you can be delivered. And what happens? She's saved. God honors this vow. How do we know? Remember what we read later in chapter 6? Rahab's house is in the wall. The wall falls down. But who's safe? Rahab and her family. Everyone in her home. It's like this one little section of the wall didn't fall down. They come and deliver her. Because God is gracious gracious and merciful. And not only that, do you realize she has a new life? Over in chapter 6, see what it said? Verse 25, Rahab the prostitute and her father's house and all who belonged to her. Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers. She became a part of the people of God. Not just that. What did we see Matthew tell us? She got married. By a man named Salmon. Not Salmon. I've been pronouncing it that way my whole life. It's Salmon. Salmon's the fish. Salmon is a man who recognizes the grace and mercy of his God. Because he saw Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, who put her faith and hope and trust in Jesus, and he said, I want to marry this lady. You know why? Because I recognize I'm stubborn of heart. I am not righteous. I deserved to suffer and die just like everybody else in Jericho. But I have been offered forgiveness and grace from my God, and so has Rahab And she is brought into Israel Loved Accepted Cared for And she is blessed greatly By our God Because who comes from Rahab The prostitute's line Jesus The Christ The son of the living God Who brings redemption And grace and mercy To all who call out And hope in him How do we know? How do we know? that this is the character and mercy and heart of Jesus. Grace and mercy to prostitutes and sinners. Over in Matthew 21, listen to what Jesus says. Beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 21. Here he's talking to the... Self-righteous Pharisees. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go in and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to another son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Tax collector? Prostitute? My grace is sufficient. Sometimes we've somehow taken sexual sin as if it's the unforgivable sin. A badge of shame and guilt that covers us for the rest of our lives. And Jesus says no. Rahab's inclusion in his genealogy says no. My grace is sufficient. New life, grace, redemption. So much so is Rahab exalted Delighted in by our God and honored that she is the picture of faith along with Abraham. Both in the book of Hebrews and in the the letter that James writes, commends and talks about Rahab and her great faith that she would hope and rest and trust in Jesus, foreseen and promised in the, the offering of the God of Israel. What what about you here this morning? If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're afraid to follow him because you're, you're haunted by what you've done and you're thinking that there's no way he would accept someone like me. Hear the message of the gospel. Hear the good news. Jesus delights to save people just like you. If you are are following Christ, will you hear and recognize this? You were not saved because you were so righteous. You are not any better than any other sinner walking the streets of Elizabeth City. We are stubborn of heart. The only hope we have Is in Jesus, who saves tax collectors, sinners, and good little self righteous people like you and me. We all need His grace and His mercy. Would you look and rest and hope and cling on Him? This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope that we have that we can have new life and salvation. In Jesus. Because in Jesus, both the justice of God and the mercy of God come together on the cross as God's wrath was poured out on him, which you and I deserved, And that as we hope and rest and trust in him, just like Rahab rested and hoped and trusted in him, we can have forgiveness. We can have new life. We can be brought into his family, secured, loved and honored by our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that we find it. Even in the book of Joshua, we pray that our hearts would be uh, more drawn to rest and hope and cling and trust in You. For Your glory and honor, we pray. Amen.